Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. Glad to have you with me here today. My guest today is John Greeley, a pediatrician um, who did his postgraduate training at Pittsburgh and at Yale. He's also a geneticist, professor at Albert Einstein with appointments in medicine, pediatrics, and genetics, an affiliate of the New York Genome Center, and a fellow of the American College of Medical Genetics, although you're kind of buried the lead, you're not actually American, right? I think you would probably guess that from my accent, I'm not I'm actually Irish. Yes, which is lovely, an added bonus here today. <laughs> we love that. Um, so you're the it's founder... Ama- it, yeah. it's, amazing, it's amazing how much traction the Irish accent gets you, and I must try to use it more often. Yeah, yeah. One of my son's closest friends is, is from England, and he came over to visit when they were in junior high, and he, you know, he went over to the school and came back, like, just laden with... I don't know, baked goods and literally like the girls were following home. And I'm like, I don't know. It's like we're having the fifth beetle here. You know, mm-hmm. that accent, man, it works. Can you imagine if you had an Irish accent, it would have been even better. It's true. It's true. I will not argue that point. Um, so you, sir, are the founding director of the Center for Epigenomics at Einstein. And usually, you know, I like to like warm things up and everything. But I want to start with the really the hardest question. What is epigenomics? How do you define it? Okay, so it's a tricky one because um, if epigenomics is very related to the broader um, field or definition of epigenetics, um, epigenomics, I think, would probably have a bit of consensus among people as genome-wide assays that study molecular regulators of transcription. Um, popularly things like DNA methylation, chromatin states, uh, but you know people will take any anything that looks like it could be in, involved with the organization of the cell, including three-dimensional uh, organization of the chromatin, and they'll you know loosely assemble it under this broad umbrella of epigenomics. The problem is that that's a relatively easy definition, and the definition of epigenetics is where uh, people can fly off in all different directions. And uh, I, I think there are probably several definitions that you could put under that particular umbrella. Yeah, I think it's one of the problems I have with everything I read about epigenetics is that I struggle first to figure out how the the speaker or the writer is defining the term. Um, mm-hmm. Because I don't... And that would be... Yeah, that would be helpful, wouldn't it? If they started <laughs> off with that, <laughs> I don't think uh, we have that baseline understanding, really. So that's a start. So, but your your center is is focused on the role in epigenetic regulation of cells and its role in human disease, right? Um, right. And so, I want you to correct me if I'm wrong here. I said there are diseases of the epigenome, like a sort of congenital serious diseases that are based on, would you say, epigenetic misregulation and. I'm thinking of those as being like both real and rare. Is that a fair characterization? Depends on what you're uh, describing as an epigenetic disease. If you look at the textbooks, you'll often see things like Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome, Prader-Willi right. syndrome, Angelman syndrome. They're actually genetic diseases. Um, you get you get Prader-Willi or Angelman typically because of either something like a deletion of the 15Q11, 1Q13 region or a uniparental diastamine and Sometimes, in a handful of cases, you'll get things like imprinting center mutations. Um, and for for Angelman, you could have a genetic mutation of UBE3A. What they do in each case is they reveal the very interesting underlying epigenetic um, uh, regulation of that particular part of the chromosome. And epigenetic in this case means uh, the probably the transcriptional regulatory uh, properties of the region in which a lot of the genes are expressed only from the father's chromosome, UBE3A only from the mother's chromosome, and it's the phenomenon of genomic imprinting. But it's not actually the imprinting that goes wrong to cause these. So it's not an epigenetic dysregulation. It's that there's a genetic mutation that reveals this interesting pattern of regulation of genes where it remembers what the last gamete it was uh, present in. So that the ones that were in sperm, um, a lot of those genes end up getting switched on, but UB3A switches off and vice versa for the genes in the region when they've been through the oocyte. 
Right, right. So, right. So, but that's the, I, I, I would have thought of it as the case where it's uniparental disomy as being an epigenetic error. You're right in the sense that the epigenetic, the methylation wasn't done in error. The error was something else. The error was what gamete is there. Um, not what gamete is there, what chromosome is there. But um, that's, even that's what I think textbook, me. If, I, if you asked me, what's, a, what's an epigenetic disease? That is, in fact, what I would come up with. So, a uniparental dysomy generally occurs for a reason as well, such as, um, say, trisomy rescue or something like that. Right, so I right. think if you're, if you're talking about a chromosome segregation abnormality, Down syndrome is a genetic problem, and so would uniparental dysomy in those, in those kinds of definitions. Okay, There's nothing okay. actually wrong with the, the... They've formed the imprint correctly in order for a uniparental dysomy to cause the condition. So again, the epigenetic... Uh, regulation is fine. It's, yeah. There's just been this other event that has occurred to reveal it. So that's it. Okay. So that's that's really actually super helpful for me getting at this definitional issue. Like what exactly we're talking about. So the rest of human disease. Um, mm-hmm. How much of it do you think can be approached through an epigenetic model? I mean, cancer, kind of obviously, right? Um, oh yes and no. Um, if you look at things like the CPG island methylator phenotype, which was our big paradigm for something going wrong with a, a regulatory mechanism, um, in this case, the DNA methylation in these very CG-dense regions, the CPG islands, which are often at promoters, um, that really looks like some sort of primary mechanism involving DNA methylation that then caused a whole bunch of genes to shut off, including tumor suppressor genes. Great paradigm. The problem is that when you now look at the cells in which this is occurring, you find that um, a cancer cell has a ton of mutations and two types of mutations that appear to be in, uh, causally involved in creating the CPG island methylation problem are BRAF mutations and also TET mutations. And the TET mutations are quite um, easy to understand because uh, the TET enzymes are involved with the demethylation of DNA. So if you lose uh, a TET enzyme um, and you're no longer able to demethylate the DNA, that does appear to be causally related to the acquisition of DNA methylation in the genome as a whole and in CPG islands as part of that. So again, you could argue um, that quite a few of the changes that we're seeing in cancer, um, if not most of them, are actually, which are manifested by these epigenetic processes, chromatin structure, DNA methylation, and so on, um, that they're actually living downstream of mutations in uh, in certain genes. Uh, there are some exceptions, and I was just having a chat the other day with Steve Balin from Johns Hopkins, and we were, we were talking about field defects, which um, are probably an exception to that kind of a rule where you have the entire breast or the entire liver or the entire, you know, descending colon or something like that, where it seems as if there can be um, a predisposition of the that region as a whole or that tissue or organ as a whole to the development of tumors. And it's manifest by the, by the development of multifocal tumors where multiple independent tumors arise because the, the organ as a whole has predisposed itself towards these events. And that is very interesting to explore in terms of what could be the uh, transcriptional regulatory or epigenetic events that could be predisposing, because it's very unlikely that there are mutations all over those particular organs. I see. So that is something that you could look at and say, like, okay, something regulatory has gone wrong here pervasively mm-hmm. what exactly. would what would what would be the the cause of that what, what would be that i assume that you're saying that it wasn't there originally this is an event that happened at a point in time exactly so um the model that i think is very interesting is um fatty liver disease it's it's something which is becoming um very common um and, and actually relatively common amongst all the causes of uh, liver cancer for a couple of reasons. One is that obesity is taking off in the Western world. 
and uh, well globally i suppose and uh, fatty liver disease and non-alcoholic stat or hepatitis as the sort of downstream uh, more uh, involved uh, uh, part of that phenotype is is also um, becoming more common um, some of our best wire- exports john some of our best Sorry. exports, obesity, so on. Some of our best exports, we're, we're yeah, we're doing well. And and then the other the other thing that's happening is uh, viral hepatitis is actually proving to be um, something that can be managed or cured with with some of these newer agents. So you're seeing uh, fatty liver disease taking off. And one of the things that you're you're able to observe in fatty liver disease is uh, as it progresses is that the incidence of hepatocellular carcinoma goes up, and it is. Um, you can see multiple foci in the liver. So, of course, you ask the question, is there intrahepatic metastasis? It started in one part of the liver and it's sort of scooted over to another part and it's based on the same tumor. Or were these two separate events? And the great, the great way of picking that apart is just to sequence the tumors. And if they, if they look genetically quite similar in terms of the somatic mutational landscape that they both have, then it's an intrahepatic metastasis. But what you see in, in the more advanced fatty liver disease spectrum patients is that they're quite distinct tumors at the genetic level, uh, suggesting that there's something that just made these livers more likely to, um, to develop neoplasia. It's a fascinating model because what it might suggest is that there could be driver mutations that happen in normal healthy livers uh, from in people who don't have any sort of uh, fatty liver disease or hepatitis. And those driver mutations cannot do anything in when the hepatocytes are basically transcriptionally doing what they're meant to do. It's only when they become dysregulated and perhaps having the effect of inflammation um, and increased cell division and all the other things that you see happening in, in those disease livers, that's when those driver mutations can actually have a neoplastic effect. It's, it's speculative, but it's a possibility. Yeah. So, so you know, I, my thought was I see cancer as a disease where systematically uh, cells um, become less defined as whatever cell type they are. And so obviously they're losing mm-hmm. some form of epigenetic regulation as a part of the process of the disease. And what you're saying to me is like, well, yeah, I mean, in that regard, well, you didn't say anything to me. I'm saying that. And so, but what you're, you're pointing to, but where are the cases where the epigenetic regulation is the causal mechanism? I think that you, there is quite a few situations where you can point to the um, global changes in transcription being uh, secondary to mutations. Um, that's not always the case by any means. And as, as you point out, the, um, the, the, the fact that the cells no longer look like the canonical cell type from, from which they were derived before they came, became neoplastic um, does argue that uh, th- there's, there's something pretty major happening with those cells. In fact, the first, um, the first use of the uh, word epigenetic to describe cancer happened in the very early part of the 20th century um, when uh, people started to talk about, uh, started to recognize the fact that the way pathologists describe cancer in terms of metaplasia and anaplasia, um, dysplasia, really they, they were talking about with anaplasia, it was like de-differentiation. With metaplasia, it was, it was almost like a change in the differentiation pattern. So they were, they were really talking about cancer um, descriptively from histological appearances in terms of uh, differentiation of cells. And interestingly enough, the, the way that embryologists would describe cell fate and cell lineage commitment was they, they described that as epigenesis. So we were talking about cancer and epigenesis um, long before the modern uh, uh, molecular era where um, uh, people like Andy Feinberg and Melanie Ehrlich um, and uh, later on Steve Bailen, Bernard Horstamke uh, started to show the DNA methylation changes in cancers. Um, that uh, we now uh, have as synonymous with um, cancer epigenetics. <laughs> you know, uh, I just want to say I, I, I think I have some sort of pandemic brain here where I followed all of what you just said, 
but spent a considerable mm-hmm. like like 10, 15 seconds sorting out for myself which century was the 20th century. So, <laughs> like, wait, yeah. is that the one we're in? Was that the last one? Oh, right, that's the mm-hmm. last one. I'm like, okay, yeah. I don't know. Early, early, early 1900s. <laughs> no, thank you for the clarification, but I did, mm-hmm. I did eventually get there. Uh, so your center... This clearly, you know, sort of as many genetic medicine centers are set up to work with uh, many different partners, right? Um, so what I'm trying to, to get a picture of is how widely, how, you know, do you think that ultimately this type of testing and this model of thinking will be a part of all specialties? Um some specialties, but how broadly integrated into medicine do you see it becoming? And, and, and is that something mm-hmm. that's understood now by clinicians? Is that hard for clinicians to grasp? Or is it is a new way of thinking or is it just new for me? I think it's, it's hard for everybody. Um, it, I set up the center uh, about 2000, 2009. The goal at the time was to try to democratize uh, sequencing and data management and analysis so that um, the community of researchers at Albert Einstein was able to uh, access these kinds of technologies easily, whether we were using microarrays still at that stage, but we we're transitioning over to sequencing. Um, at that time, it was it was pretty straightforward. You, you take your samples, you perform DNA methylation studies, um, chromatin studies at that time, probably more like CHIP-seq experiments, and then gene expression studies. And you try to understand what the uh, the differences are in, in terms of the cell that had either had an exposure or had a genetic mutation or had some sort of um, uh, characterized disease state. Um, that was then. The by 2014, I was on sabbatical because I no longer believed what we were doing. I felt that we had um, we had gone down this path where we were so enamored with our uh, ability to do assays and um, sort of crunch those numbers in increasingly sophisticated ways that we 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 were missing something. We we were we were ignoring confounding effects on our results. Things like um, the I, I had some colleagues who were studying uh, DNA methylation in a part of the body, uh, uh, and they were reporting back that they were seeing these big changes in genes that were basically from T cells, but they were not looking at T cells. They were looking at, a, a, at another part of the body. But it was a, a part of the body that in the disease that they were studying, there should be inflammation. And what was clear was that the reason that they were seeing this differential expression pattern was not because the the cells in question were switching on T cell genes, it's because T cells were infiltrating the tissue and they were not taking that into account. Mm-hmm. So we, we had the assumption that what we were doing was all the cells were the same and they were in some way changing their pattern of DNA methylation gene expression or whatever it might be. But we were failing to account for the fact, stuff that we've known about since the 1800s when the German chemical industry started to create the dyes that we use to do um, uh, histochemistry. Um, we're, we see differences in the cell compositions in tissues when there are diseases. And we were not taking that into account when we were doing our studies of DNA methylation and so on. Uh, the other thing that we were failing to take into account was that we have genetic differences um, uh, as human beings, and um, some of the, the mouse studies that we were doing were using um, uh, outbred mouse strains. And the genetic differences were increasingly being recognized to influence the DNA methylation gene expression and so on. So, And we weren't taking any of this into account, and we were reporting things blithely as if there were no um, confounding effects. So I, I went back to the original description of the field and really re- rethought what, what we were doing and started, made the decision that the only perspective that really matters when we do these kinds of studies is the perspective of the cell. The cell is the unit of organization of all of these molecular events. 
And if we can understand what's happening, if we think of what's happening in terms of how does this reveal what's happening to the composition of different cell types and then the reprogramming of canonical cell types within that uh, broader mixture of cell types, then we can we can make pronouncements about what we think the pathogenesis of disease is. But getting back to your original question, it's this is really challenging for people who spend all day long thinking about epigenetics. It's and how we take that to a clinical um, application remains um, very very tricky. Yeah, when you start looking at what's going on in a single cell in real time data you can, you know, look at the day-to-day changes, right? Like what's actually mm-hmm. happening in that cell. Uh, I, I mean, I, I don't know that it would help us today because we have so much learning curve ahead of us in terms of understanding mm-hmm. what does that gene expression mean, right? But Absolutely. I foresee this day that it's a, you walk into an emergency room and it's part of it. The, 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 the snapshot genome sequence gets you what's been true your whole life, and so if you've been healthy your whole life and now you're sick, it's moderately helpful, right? Like there's ways in which you can helpful, but it's not telling you what happened to turn you from a healthy person into a sick person. But mm. g- gene expression could. Well, I, it, that assumes that somatic mutations are not uh, that common. And I think one of the other really interesting but, you know, head-scratching things that we have to deal with is the, the, the wealth of information that is now coming out um, about the sheer amount of somatic mutation that appears to be happening in our bodies as, as we age. Um, there was a group in the Sanger uh, Institute who were taking post-mortem islets and I think esophageal epithelium, and they were just basically gritting out, cu- chopping up the skin um, or the epithelium from the um, esophagus, creating a grid where you'd kind of go A1, A2, A3, B1, B2, B3, and so on. And then they were deep sequencing those little chunks of material and they were showing that there were somatic mutations present and you could see them uh, kind of spatially confined within the tissue. So um, by the time that we have been out in the sun for a few years uh, and you're starting to get, um, you've been through rounds of sunburn if you're a a pale-skinned Irish person. um, Or or a redhead, thank you. Uh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're going to end up with all of these somatic mutations on your skin. It's just a fact of life. And then the question is: is is there a, is there something that is happening in cell types in the body which reflects somatic mutations giving rise to disease? And this is where the area of clonal, clonal hematopoiesis becomes really interesting because um, it's not only being associated with a, a risk for uh, uh, leukemogenesis or you know myelodysplastic syndrome. But also things like, um, f- for some reason, cardiovascular disease, and uh, it's, it's fascinating that uh, the the potential that we could be getting from understanding somatic mutations to understand not just um, the pathogenesis of disease, but also the ability to develop biomarkers that would be probably quite predictive for people who have um, trajectories in front of them of uh, various types of conditions. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think we're used to thinking of our, I, I mean, I'm old enough to be very used to thinking of our knees and our backs and the physical wear and tear. And we don't think of DNA as being subject to the same levels of physical wear and tear. But of course it is. And definitely my skin knows that. And my esophagus knows that as well. And and, and by the way, the last three months have not been kind to my esophagus. So yeah, um, I get it. Like, you can you can feel it. Um, and the physical, uh, threat. Um, and I am, no, so that's a very interesting line of conversation, although I'm going to steer us back away from it because (laughs) (laughs) I just, because that's your job. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's sort of my job, but, um, because I'm curious, like I, I, this was my basic question that I was thinking of. It's like, is it more of your time as an epigenetics and epigenomics expert is it harder to get clinicians to believe that epigenetics is something or harder to get the the overexcited public to believe that epigenetics isn't everything? Like, the latter is a real challenge. Um, it, sometimes just to sober myself up in terms of my enthusiasm, I go onto Twitter and I do a search for epigenetics. 
and 98% of what's posted is is fantasy and it's 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 not this is not being posted generally by fellow scientists or clinicians it's being posted by members of the public who 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 really want it to be true they want things to be true such as uh, um, your genes are not your destiny so if you do yoga or eat something horrible like kale um, you, you can end up um, Im- improving your 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 health because you can overcome uh, how your genes might have been yeah, acting yeah, yeah, otherwise yeah. I don't mind kale but I just think that, that they've just fed the public a bill of goods on the idea that raw kale is a human food like it's not it'd be like eat this straw you know we, we feed it to cattle in Ireland. I know that. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's totally, it's totally just like, like you guys, you know, uh, it's not quite drink bleach, <laughs> but still, it's just like raw kale's not a food. I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry. Clorox and kale, they sound kind of the same. Uh, so <laughs> I think that, that may have been what the president meant. Maybe. And, oh, um, no, yeah, okay. Um, I've never tried cabbage. Cabbage is lovely. Cabbage, cabbage, cabbage. Sorry, if you call it coleslaw, it's another member of the Brassica family. You know, we 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 don't give cabbage the respect that it deserves, but we digress. (laughs) (laughs) I am also from a cabbage eating people. I have to tell you, stuff it. Good. Okay. Yeah. Um, So I'm going to go through a a sort of a checklist uh, for Mm. your, you know. what are except and I don't entirely set. I don't want to argue with you about this because you're clearly the expert. But yet, you say it's like it's not really the scientific community, but a lot of it's in the press releases. You know. Um, oh God! Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's. I not, agree. It's not like entirely everybody's fault if they think there's this thing out there that means uh, a you can not age if you you know fix it and all and and b that means that it's your grandparents fault uh whatever's wrong with you so um mm-hmm. so but going through like so clearly there's things that happen to a woman uh can be transferred to the fetus there's susceptibilities to disease and so on that you could label as epigenetic transmission from mother to fetus right that's a fair well, you can certainly do that through genetic mechanisms. Um, the, a woman pa- passing something on to her, her fetus, there, there's a direct exposure of the um, fetus to the mother's metabolism. Um, so that could that can influence the 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 the, the fetal growth uh, in in various ways. It's probably better studied in, in um, animal models. Um, the I want a nonsense percent- gauge on this, John. I want like like this isn't nonsense or this is nonsense. You know, that that I don't. That's not nonsense at all. Whether it's epigenetic by uh, people's uh, definitions of what it takes to be truly epigenetic is, is that that's where the controversy would arise. Right. No. So what, what if it's what, what if it's the father? What if it's you know the father smoking, not smoking, stress, not mm-hmm. stress, affecting. The fetus, the greater risk of diabetes or schizophrenia, is that nonsense? Where does that fall on the nonsense spectrum? It's it's um it's still it's at the more speculative uh, end of things right now. There's um, there's really good evidence in things like C. elegans and plants that you can pass on a a not only a trait but also a molecular mechanism that underlies that trait um, through, uh, from generation to generation. Um, it's there, there's no no doubt about that. Um, when you get to mammals, it it's still a murky field. Um, there are some um, phenotypes which have been uh, associated with um, an exposure to a prior generation. Um, some of those changes that you look at when you when you see the the you know the mouse has been put into a water maze or something like that, and not to choose any particular type of study, but these 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 changes are relatively subtle. Um, uh, so you know, they're, but if they're if they're real, they're real, and if, the, if colleagues are able to prove that they are significant differences, that's great. Um, the second thing that people are are looking at is um, 
what happens to the sperm in uh, in male mice who've undergone some sort of an exposure. And um, there, you know, there's some interesting observations. Um, I really like the work of Ollie Rando up in the University of Massachusetts, looking at these interesting RNAs that accumulate uh, associated with these kinds of um, exposures. There's a very recent paper, I think it was in Molecular Cell, which talked about a transcription factor being activated in spermatogenesis and it seems to change the chromatin structure. So certainly things can happen in sperm. Uh, things can happen to the adult and phenotypes appear to be happening in offspring, but we're still trying to connect those dots and it's, it's tough. It's very yeah. difficult. Yeah. And, yeah. And you get a lot of people talking about like the, um, the, the Dutch famine studies um, where they talk about showing effects at the grandparent grandparental level and I am very skeptical of that because I don't understand how it could be true but I mean is that just not valid that work or you must be very familiar with it well I, I always tend to revere the work of specialists uh, whose <laughs> disciplines I don't understand very much whether it's neuroscientists or epidemiologists um, but when so, so I'm trying to uh, complete a book uh, on epigenetics right now. And as part of that, I was, I was starting to talk to epidemiologists about the um, these sort of foundational studies. And I was talking to Ezra Susser up at Columbia University, yeah. whose, par whose parents were actually involved with the very earliest um, studies of the Dutch hunger winter. Um, and he was saying that... Um, uh, there are a few things that don't tend to get mentioned, not to invalidate anything, but just to uh, to say that we, we, we should still think critically about these kinds of studies. Um, and I'd love to see epidemiologists um, talking a little bit more about it. One of the things that Ezra pointed out, his mother had gone into the studies, um, Ruth, Ruth Stein was her name, she, she went into the studies to try to see whether there was an effect on intelligence of these um, offspring. And what she found was that the, the children who were exposed to the famine um, were actually more intelligent than the children who weren't. So she had great difficulty getting this published. And in some of her uh, kind of later life interviews, um, she she was talking about colleagues being enraged because it didn't fit with their their sense of you know social justice. Um, but she she stood by her her findings, and what she said was that the women who were more fecund um, during this period of, of biological uh, stress were women who were better off, um, better had better nutrition and so on mm. to start with. So she felt that there was a, a strong selection effect there. Ezra, who is one of the nicest people you'll ever meet, and is very kind of polite and um, even-handed in his, in his judgment, the, the only thing that he said that he was concerned about um, was that he didn't see the finding of obesity uh, replicate in the uh, Chinese famine. I think it was the Great Leap Forward um, uh, famine of the mid-20th century. Um, but the thing that did appear to replicate was the risk of schizophrenia, an increased risk of schizophrenia in these, in these individuals. Um, the other thing that I was cautioned about when talking to these you know, smart epidemiologists um, is that there, there is a, a, a temptation or a tendency in some studies to kind of uh, slice and dice results after the um, study has been done. And if you look at some of the results um, as it, uh, as originally reported, there there was a, something about how if you were exposed in one of the trimesters of pregnancy, you had an increased risk of obesity, but in, a, I think, a later trimester, you actually had a decreased risk of obesity, mm -hmm. um, and it was only in males and not in females, something like that. I, I don't remember the exact details, but um, the, the uh, there, there's a, an acronym to HARC, uh, hypothesized after results known, which is, I'm sure, to some extent, reasonable and acceptable when you don't go in with a, a, a clear starting hypothesis. But at the same time, it does mean that we should be, I think, very careful about um, over-interpreting um, epidemiological studies and assuming that they have proven something. I think they're a great starting point for doing the definitive uh, studies in things like animal models. 
And uh, that that work is ongoing, and very good people are working on it, and hopefully they will give us some definitive answers. Yeah, there's there's something about epigenetics that makes these lovely stories, that I think yes. is a part of the risk factor. There's these lovely stories. So I heard uh, years ago Michael Meany speak, actually, at Columbia, um, mm-hmm. and uh, about his work and uh, Francis Champagne's, other people, I don't know all the names. Uh, and obviously this... Not obviously, it can be obviously to John, but not, not to the whole world, but it's, this is work in uh, rats. Um, so, and the, the essence of it was that um, a very early formative period, that uh, parenting, uh, mothering, during a very early formative period was associated with epigenetic events um, that would essentially um, prepare the offspring for either sort of good times or bad times, um, meaning that, that the, the, the offspring um, bred in a period of great stress with an inattentive mother, theoretically, and let's say facing a famine or like a pandemic maybe, um, would uh, prime the offspring to be certain things for its whole life, like uh, extra alert or, um, or more clinging to calories, things that had short-term benefits and maybe a longer-term deleterious effects. And, and, um, and so I remember he said at the end of the talk, he goes, it has not escaped my, our attention <laughs> that this story could have a, a, a parallel uh, in, in humans, but I have to counsel you that it's never you know, been replicated in humans and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is this... Uh, and again, that was years ago, and I don't know uh, where we are in that work right now. But mm-hmm. um, you know, it is this incredible, tempting uh, sort of platform that you can read read into these these stories that explain many many things. Um, and I think that's part of the. It's so seductive. I completely agree, and I think that's part of the reason why it, it does get so much traction with people making these posts on Twitter. Uh, Michael is one of the nicest people you'll ever meet, a really charming guy. Um, I've had discussions with him be, because about this uh, particular model. Um, I think there's some things that you'd, you'd love to go back and, and redo. Uh, he took a, a, a piece of brain and, and looked at DNA methylation at one locus, which was, I think, the gonadotropin receptor or something like that. Or glucocorticoid receptor. I, can't, yeah, I actually I, can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but the, the, what we now recognize is that the pattern of DNA methylation that you get in a tissue is reflective of the composition of cells in that tissue. And if there was something different about the rats that were growing with some sort of stress um, so that the population of the cells was different, that's you know enough to change your DNA methylation pattern. It doesn't mean that cells were reprogramming. The, the cells themselves may not have changed any of their methylation patterns. It's just that there may be a different proportion of cells in there that had more methylation at the locus, for example. And the reason that this becomes um, potentially relevant is there's a very good mouse um, uh, uh, researcher in the University of Pittsburgh, a neuroscientist um, uh, called... Uh, Don DeFranco. And what Don has been doing is uh, giving mice things like dexamethasone or glucocorticoid um, when they're dams, when they're pregnant with, with offspring. And they looks to see what happens with the, with the development of the brain in those pups. And what he's shown is that th- those pups will do really interesting behavioral things in terms of not ha- having the same patterns of anxiety and mobility and all the things that, that these really good neuroscientists do when they're studying their, their animal models. But Don, instead of just taking a lump of brain and you know doing RNA-seq or, or DNA methylation studies, he looked at the brain. He, he made sections of it. And what he realized was that the cerebral cortex was thinner than the animals that had the glucocorticoid exposure prenatally. And the distribution of cells within the, glu- within the cerebral cortex was different. So if you were thinking that you were going to do a, a DNA methylation study on the cerebral cortex 
um, in the animals that were exposed to the leukocorticoids versus the ones that weren't, and you took a chunk of the cerebral cortex, you may have systematically um, collected a different population of cells in the animals that were um, exposed to the leukocorticoids. And as a result, you'll get a, di a difference in DNA methylation, but it's because of a difference in the mixture of cells with all of their different DNA methylation patterns. And no individual cells may have actually reprogrammed. Mm -hmm. um, sort of the pruning, so, the pruning of the cells or the, or the uh, out-competing uh, of various groups? Possibly. Uh, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not an expert on, on uh, neurodevelopment. Um, but the, You're the, getting to the same uh, effect by a different mechanism. Exactly. Exactly. But for a lot of people in the epigenetics community, the, the paradigm is that cells have got to change their DNA methylation or their chromatin structure or their gene expression. But it's as powerful or perhaps even more powerful a mechanism of retaining a memory of a prior event that you change the structure of the tissue or you, you change the cell subtypes that create the tissue uh, in terms of their proportions. Mm -hmm. um, so, there, as far as I'm concerned, that's a great way of creating an, a memory of a prior event. And it's a very Waddingtonian um, way of, of defining epigenetics in terms of cell fate decisions, uh, just as Waddington was talking about his epigenetic landscape and the ball rolling down the hill, bifurcating into these different channels or creodes, as he called them. Um, the, 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 he was talking about cell fate. And these uh, individual channels were created by genes. And so he, he was, uh, in his model, was talking about how genes can influence cell fate. And that was his original idea about epigenetics. But if you talk about a perturbation of that landscape, not because of the changes in uh, genes, or mutations, but in terms of some sort of exposure, which now changes cell fates, that that's a, a great way of, of having the tissue lock in a different property for the long term. And it's very much in line with, with uh, Waddington's cell face kind of a model. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting. Maybe may harder to correct, I don't know, or, or change, I shouldn't say correct. But uh, and it, the, the path you're describing sounds very much in line with what we understand about the development of the brain in general, right? Where you know, um, pathways that are in use survive and other things get pruned away and, and over time you strengthen one pathway and let another wither. Yeah, I, I'm going to defer to you on this because this is we better bring in a third party here I, I mean what I'm going to change tack a little bit now I wanted to um, because there's this other part of your uh, work that that I wanted to talk about and I was trying to connect the two because you know I'm a geneticist so that's what I try and do right it's like you know there's got to be some underlying connection here um, but you've been done a lot of work developing software to make mm -hmm. genomics more effective. And then I was thinking like, well, the guy is interested in software, like epigen <laughs> epigenomics. It's kind of the software. It's kind of the software mm -hmm. of genetics. So um, mm -hmm. <laughs> that was the best I could do. I don't know. <laughs> That's the segue. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know it's weak, but it's, it's where I was going. Um, so mm -hmm. uh You've 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 done a, a number of uh, software packages, uh, but there's one in particular that you've been working on that I know is in beta right now. Perhaps you'd like to um, discuss it a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I think you're you're probably talking about Genome Diver, which is a, a big uh, a big thing that we're we're currently working on. So I think we have to backtrack a little bit. I started off life as a pediatrician, went into genetics, and looked at what was happening with the Human Genome Project at the time, and I was not convinced that by knowing about DNA sequence of protein-coding genes, we were going to be able to explain phenotypes. I was very interested in the idea that there was um, regulatory information we should be knowing about, and that some of the variation in the non-coding uh, majority of the genome was going to be important for genetics. So I've all my career being interested in how do, how do we come up with better ways of interrogating the information that allows us to understand what's happening with the sort of kids that I see in clinic. Um, 
as part of this, um, I, when it when the opportunity arose to uh, work on whole genome sequencing of our patients in Montefiore and and with colleagues who are seeing patients at Mount Sinai and in collaboration with the diagnostic lab at the New York Genome Center where they were doing whole genome sequencing, we had the opportunity for the first time in my practice to start applying whole genome sequencing to kids with rare disorders. And this particular CSER grant, it's called mm-hmm. an NIH-funded program, um, was specifically directed towards doing this in diverse populations, which obviously is, is what we have in the Bronx in particular. So um, fascinating possibility. Um, and it, it's putting in front of us all sorts of data uh, that we will be digging into for years to come as regards the intergenic um, sequences that are potentially going to end up looking pathogenic in, in some of these kids. But we, I began to realize for the first time what the challenges are for a diagnostic lab like the the lab in the New York Genome Center, what my colleagues down there have to deal with. And it really reveals the issues that, that we face as um, in, uh, in not communicating well between the uh, clinicians, and I would combine both uh, the uh, physicians and the genetic counselors in that category, mm-hmm. and the uh, laboratory scientists who are, who are doing the, rec- the uh, sort of semi-research, semi-diagnostic work. And each of those, um, it's been calculated that each time they they do one of those rare disease cases, it takes 12, 12 person hours uh, for one of these specialist people to churn out one report. So I thought, is there a way that we can enhance this process? And I'd, I'd written a previous grant in data visualization, uh, which was the, the uh, sort of embryo of this particular idea. But the 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 the, the genome diver uh, project has got to the point. I was just doing a genome diver session earlier. We're we're, we're doing a lot of testing right now. Um, what happens is this: the laboratory is has generated the sequence file. They've generated the variant call format file or VCF file, which has got all of the variants in that individual's genome. And if you've done the parents, you can also add in this variant came from dad, this variant came from mom, whatever it might be. So you've got the the kid's uh, VCF uh, file. The uh, report, the order for the test came in with some description of what the kid had. And generally what the lab does is try to translate this information into um, terms that can be used diagnostically um, through uh, a computer. So in general, for children's rare diseases, these are called HPO or human phenotype ontology terms. And because of the fact that what we're doing when we have a family who comes in for a diagnosis, we are doing the most underpowered research study ever where we're looking at you know one, two, or three people. Um, we we can't do what you would do in a research study, which would be have a cohort of individuals who have this particular phenotype and then a cohort of controls or look at uh, in a family where there are multiple effectives, uh, compare the effectives with the unaffected people. You, you just basically have to work with that trio. So what the lab tries to do is to match the variants that look pathogenic with previously associated HPO terms for that gene, and then see if those HPO terms match what you've described for the kid. Um, and it's it's a difficult process for everybody involved because the number of HPO terms and their quality is often quite limited. So the idea of Genome Diver was that the VCF is fed into Genome Diver with whatever HPO terms the lab had. The that's going to generate a list of genes and variants that will kind of bubble up to the top where they're, they're more likely to be associated with the kid's phenotype. And if you have, say, your top five genes, each of them is going to have a whole set of HPO terms associated with them for what normally happens when each of them would have a mutation. So you then uh, look at those HPO terms and say, so if you have one um, 
uh, term which is present in all five of those um, mutations associated with all five of those genes, then the uh, it doesn't help you in any way. It doesn't help discriminate those genes. But if there's an HPO term which is associated with just one of the five genes, you want to put that in front of the clinician and say, does the patient have this? Does the patient have micronathia? Does the patient have cafe or lay spots, whatever it might be? Um, so the, what Genome Diver does is it finds those HPO terms, puts them in front of the uh, clinician in a nice user interface where they can just basically drag it into, yes, the patient has it, no, the patient doesn't have it, or uncertain, I don't know. Uh, and for, for things like, you know, does the patient have dural ectasia, does the patient have dilation of the aortic root, you may not have done the appropriate testing to know that, so you put that into the uh, I don't know category. Having done that, and that takes about two or three minutes at most, you click submit and it reruns the, the gene variant prioritization. It takes about 20 minutes. So generally people go away and they come back and they look at their, their to-do list afterwards. And now what you're getting is a list of genes and the associated OMIM or other description of what that phenotype tends to look like. And you can go through it and say, this actually does look like uh, Rubenstein-Tavy syndrome or whatever might be fl uh, flagged uh, right. coming up in that right. list. And then you can flag it um, and you can send the entire set of new information back to the lab and say, this could, kid could have Rubenstein-Tavy syndrome. Here's a, an expanded and higher value set of HPO terms and you can also write a little note if you want. And the idea is that it's going to help the lab to work more efficiently and also help communication to occur between the lab and the clinician, which is something that we don't do effectively at the moment. Yeah, yeah, no, it's very interesting to me because I'm going to give some credit. I have a student that graduated yesterday, our Sarah Lawrence human, yes, human genetics class, graduated with their master's degrees yesterday in a lovely virtual event. And um, uh, one of my students, Lauren Frank, did a lovely um, master's thesis on uh, looking from uh, looking retroactively at samples in a lab, sort of try and discover uh, the value of certain phenotypic information um, in uh, moving um, in, in moving from variants of uncertain significance to likely pathogenic or pathogenic status. Um, but the thing I took away from from having advised her thesis that I learned through that is that the the phenotypic information the lab has is um, when you compare between labs the sort of worst and most subjective of the lines of evidence they work with, um, uh, uh, according to uh, studies. So, and you can kind of see why it would be the hardest one to work with because what's indicative may not be the most significant you know what 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 is what is most useful in terms of differentiating one gene from another gene may not be the most important phenotypic feature it's just in, ter the in most terms of the management of the patient yes yes it's, it's exactly yeah yeah so um so it may not jump out as a clinician as being mm -hmm. so important you know it's like the broad thumbs you know that kind of thing. yeah like like exactly. Like fine, but my patient, the thing is, they have a heart problem, um, mm -hmm. and it might be the most helpful uh, genetic differentiation. And on the lab side, uh, you could see where phenotype also is. Uh, it's hard, you know. You, you one person describes something using one set of words, and another person might describe the same thing using a slightly different set of words, um, mm -hmm. which doesn't necessarily work. This program prompts them towards specific terms and specific pieces of evidence that have sort of been predetermined as might be helpful in making mm -hmm. these distinctions. That's, uh, yeah. that's very, that's very interesting. And, and it also, um, I would guess having this portal for communication, um, would encourage communication simply when it might or might not be that their habit, you know? Exactly. And an appreciation of what each other is doing. I think for the uh, clinician to understand that there's 
value in giving more information to the diagnostic lab. That's there's going to be some value to that by itself. But I also think that the the diagnostic lab um, may or may not understand that it can be sometimes difficult to say whether the child has, uh, say, low set ears. Uh, there are some things which in in one kid are unambiguous. Those ears are low set. In another, you're kind of looking at it and saying, mm, I don't know. Um, and so you, the, the fact that we are not dealing with, with precision and clarity when we see the kid, um, that may be a surprise to our colleagues. So just the ability for us to c- communicate with each other productively, uh, with the same goal that we, we try to collaborate to make a, a diagnosis on these kids. Um, that would be, I think, very, very exciting. So, so this is interesting. So when is this? When and how is this available? What's the What's the bigger What's the story on that? So we have um, we're starting a, a, a trial of it within the NYC KidSeek project, uh, a sort of a comparison trial to see what happens if we take half the. Uh, cases that we are dealing with and incorporate genome diagram into the diagnostic workflow and the other half we don't and so we routine standard of care on both sides but with the addition of genome diagram one and see does it does it change uh, the diagnostic rate which it may or may not um, uh, hopefully it will um, and also does it change this these more qualitative metrics of appreciation for what's involved in terms of phenotyping and in terms of um, making diag- uh, genetic diagnoses from genomic information. Um, th- we, we will test these things and continuously optimize the software. Um, and we, we, our goal, our, our strategy is to, to make the software portable so it can be um, migrated over to other institutions and loaded in, on their servers locally. Uh, the inherent uh, nature of the, the fact that personal health information is inherently involved with um, Genome Diver means that it's probably not ever going to be a, a candidate for having as a web service. Um, there's just too much uh, potential for things to go awry. Um, but if you can load it onto a local server and really protect your information locally, that's a much more responsible way of doing it. Yeah. So this is something that to the wider genetics population might be available well, who knows? The future has this sort of murkiness right now, right? I assume it's... Um, yeah, everything assume you're is... Seeing, everything is seeing really a lot fewer of these kind of normal cases. Oh, goodness. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, John, we have a, a good friend in common, and I said to him, I'm interviewing uh, John Greeley tomorrow. What do I need to ask him? And he gave me this list, and I, I can't share the whole list, but, <laughs> but here's the one. He goes... What does rugby teach us about how to collaborate well in science and other <laughs> endeavors? And I was like, okay, I'll ask him that. Uh, <laughs> I, I, will, um, I, I know exactly who this friend must be. Yeah. Um, what does rugby have? So um, in science and in medicine, we, are, we work in teams. Um, I, I divide... Uh, my categorization of people into into those who who play solo sports like golfers and tennis players and people like that, and those who play in team sports. Um, I was a, I was a team sport player. Played rugby. I've been coaching rugby for a number of years here in New York in the Village Lions uh, rugby team downtown. Um, and I think that uh, there is a value in terms of trying to understand how to do well individually, but also to contribute to the collective efforts of a team. And there, when you're able to learn that through a team sport, not just through rugby, um, you become a better clinician, you become a better collaborator and scientist. Um, there, there's, there's a lot to be said for it. I only wish I could take my people to work because it's a very effective uh, coaching tool. <laughs> I had uh yeah I raised uh three team sport kids one of whom actually um dropped soccer football as you might call it in college to play rugby um but uh mostly what he impressed upon me was the likelihood of breaking bones that's that's what he yeah <laughs> We've, we've all gone through that. <laughs> yeah. It was a little nerve-wracking, I'll have to tell the truth, but uh, he he did love it, and he did love that. Um, and I do think 
it's it's a hard line to argue because there's there's so much bad in youth sports, but I would say overall, um, it was so wonderful for my kids in terms of what they did learn about both being a part of a team and being a leader, both things at once. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, great. Uh, well, thank you for spending this time with us in a discussion that was largely in what I call the COVID-free zone. Uh, <laughs> sometimes you need a little content that's, you know, not about the virus. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. So I appreciate, I know everyone's a little, I don't know, a combination of being both very crazy busy and sort of in suspended animation, which is... Um, yes, um, busy and bored is what I'm, uh, how people are describing themselves. What's well, like, I, I, I don't actually mind, like I don't actually feel bored, but it's just this weird thing where it's like being out at sea and you can't see the horizon because every day mm-hmm. is the same and there isn't any sort of particular prospect of change. I feel like... It's, it gives an inappropriate sense that where we are is forever. Um, That's a really interesting analogy. I like that. Uh, I'm going to steal that. <laughs> you're, you're very welcome to it. Um, John, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. And by us, I mean just me. Just me and my dog. We're the only ones here. We're the, always the only ones here. <laughs> Say hello to your dog for me. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I definitely will. And thank you to everyone who's listening. Uh, please follow me on Twitter at Laura Hersher and go to BeagleLanda.com and subscribe. And I hope you en- enjoyed our conversation today. Take care, everyone. Be safe, be sane, be well. Bye.